Welcome back to GLF Live, the official podcast of the Global Landscapes Forum. If you're listening to this right now, chances are, over the last two years, you've spent way too much time on the internet. But here you are anyway. In this digital age, so many of us are experiencing a form of digital overload, as we're constantly bombarded by different sources of information that all too often contradict each other. So how exactly are we supposed to know what to believe, especially about highly contested topics like climate change? And what does it mean for our relationship with the world around us? In last week's episode, we talked about the battle between science and fake news. And today, we'll be joined by one of the world's leading media theorists, Douglas Rushkoff, to explore how the media shapes our personal narratives. My name is Gabrielle Lipton. I'm the editor of Landscape News for the Global Landscapes Forum. Right now, we have um, the leading media theorist of our time with us to tell us a bit about where we are right now in the digital age. His name is Douglas Rushkoff. I'm so excited to talk to him. He's written numerous books and articles. As Daniel said, he hosts a podcast and he really examines the digital ecosystem from all different angles from how it affects indigenous peoples to how it drives consumerism and can create cults around brands. Terms like viral media and social currency are linked back to Douglas. So he's really getting into the details of what our online lives mean for us personally, and also what they mean for us collectively as a global village, a term that we'll probably get to later in this conversation. Uh, His podcast and his most recent book are both titled Team Human, and he's publishing the book serially on Medium, uh, available for you to read, as well as you can order it hard copy online or find it in your bookstore. Those links are going to be dropped in the chat chat box, um, so you can check it out there. And welcome, Douglas. So great to have you. Hi, good to be with you. Great. Um, So I'm going to start this conversation kind of right where we are. Um, Due to COVID-19, also due to uh, looking at things like emissions reductions, a lot more of our human interactions are going online. And they're happening, I've come to see, in quite granular ways where people focused on specific topics, such as we are at this climate conference, Um, coming together to talk about those in smaller groups. But the point of your book, Team Human, is that humans are collaborative and to solve our pressing challenges, we really need to come together as a species. So how are you seeing um, this pandemic? And as we're all staying at home more and meeting online more, how are you seeing that affect the way that we're coming together in small and large groups? I mean, in some ways it's, it's for the positive. I mean, I feel like the, the, the crisis has helped us see what the net is good for and what it's not good for. And I think people are increasingly having meetings that are stressing kind of their, their utility value. In other words, what is this meeting for? What are we here for? What do we want to accomplish? And how do I move on? You know, it's not, I'm doing this meeting just to feel good or just have a meeting or to connect with other people because we're kind of not really connecting with other people online. You really can't, you can't do that for real. You know, the, the, to establish rapport with another person, you've got to be able to see their, their pupils getting larger or smaller as you talk. You see whether their breathing is sinking up to yours, whether the skin tone is changing. That these are you know, painstakingly evolved mechanisms for establishing social rapport that you know, we, we evolved over 500 or 800,000 years of, of 
being human. Those things don't work online. So the, the mirror neurons in my brain won't, won't fire because I didn't get the cue. The oxytocin won't go through my blood. We won't get that bonding sense. And traditionally, when you're using the net wrong and you think, oh, I'm going to get this feeling of bonding with that person and I'm going to see if they really agree with me and if I can get that positive reinforcement, the person on the other side of the Skype call or the Zoom call, they said they agreed with me, but I didn't feel it in my body. And when you get off the phone, you don't say to yourself, oh, that's because I'm using a medium that doesn't allow for my mirror neurons to fire. You know, instinctually, you just say that person says they agreed with me, but I don't feel like they did. I don't trust them anymore. And it ends up eroding the relationships. But now I feel like now that we're, we're under stress with COVID and, and in lockdown in so many places, we're using this, it's kind of like um, uh, we're trying to orchestrate our world through a straw, you know, <laughs> through a little digital straw. And we've experienced the frustration, but we also experience what can we actually do? All right, I can come up with marching orders. We can organize, we can do specific utilitarian things, but the, the, the experience of being on, online so much, at least for me, it reminds me of when, uh, when I was a kid and my father caught me smoking cigarettes and he took me out to the back and took the, he made me smoke the whole pack of cigarettes. And I got so sick, right? So this thing that kind of used to be fun of the net, now that we're doing it so much, I feel like people are kind of nauseous of it. And they're looking for, you know, that once this is done, I don't know how much we're going to want to use Zoom. People are saying, oh, we're going to use Zoom for everything after this. I'm thinking, I don't know. I think people are going to long for live contact again, live live connection. But uh, the, the beauty of it is that we are seeing what this is good for. You know, people don't need to make an app for everything. When the, the way hospitals are getting their supplies from the public is with a simple Google Doc. They set up a spreadsheet. All the hospitals are listing. They're saying where you can, what supplies they need, where you can leave them. It's like, oh, you don't need an app for that. You just, this, that, the, the things the net can do, it can already do so well. You know, and I, I feel like we're getting really good at seeing you know, how to use the tools we have rather than to just to try to make money inventing some new tool that nobody needs. Mm -hmm. I think what you're saying feeds directly into consumerism and what we need with sustainability, which is downsizing and creating less and purchasing less. Are you saying that we need to downsize our digital ecosystem as well? Oh, yeah. The digital ecosystem we have was not developed to serve people or places. The digital ecosystem we have was in what most of the things we use were invented to create exponential growth for a particular technology and by any means necessary. So they'll take the nastiest tools from behavioral finance. They have a whole division at, at Stanford called Captology, which is how to make a tool, uh, how to make a digital product addictive, how to make it so that a little girl will, you know, re, uh, you know, re-swipe on her, on her Snapchat to see if anybody else has come in to do streaks and all these really psychological tricks to make people addicted to a piece of technology that doesn't serve humankind. It doesn't serve anything. But so if you take it all the way back to capitalism, which is not just the idea of trying to make money with money, but capitalism is really about serving the banks. It's about how, how do you make money by having money? 
period, not by creating value, not by exchanging value, but by extracting value from people and places and things, the people and places end up depleted. You know, the, the topsoil is depleted by companies that the worst thing for Monsanto, say, would be regenerative soil management. You know, uh-oh, what are they 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 don't need us anymore. You know, the best thing for Monsanto would be plants that are addicted to the drugs that they're putting on or a topsoil that'll grow no food without, you know, bioengineered insanity on it. So if each solution that people are coming up with is a, is a solution geared to generating the most uh, uh, the most profit, then they're not going to be the things that are getting people offline, that are reconnecting people with their families. They're going to be the things that are keeping people online and addicting them to, uh, uh, you know, increasingly uh, brittle uh, uh, relationships to technology and business in the world. Mm -hmm. I'm going to play devil's advocate a bit, though, because we are an environmental organization. And so for us, things like this conference are really important because they reduce emissions so much. And also in terms of inclusivity and diversity, we're seeing almost 5,000 people come in from across the world. Right. So how do we maintain those benefits while also downsizing? What good examples have you seen in all the myriad events you've been doing recently? Yeah. I don't know that that's devil's advocate. I think we're we're agreeing, you know? So what you're saying is then how can we, given what we know about the inability of people to establish great rapport over long distances using digital technology, how do we accomplish our mission without spending jet fuel and destroying the planet? Well, what you do is you, you people, this, this, you understand that your mission is not about generating rapport between 4,000 people at one time. You know, your mission is about knowledge production and transmission, uh, sharing best practices, that there's a utilitarian function to something like this that, that transcends the, the human to human function of this. And if people are really lonely, you know, if they're lonely, this is not where to get, where to fill that. You know, this is not where to fill your need for for those relations. You're not going to, sorry, you're not going to meet the love of your life on the on the thing. At least you you, you may, but you won't know it. Um, but you know, you can use this. You can at the end or at part of this see if there you want to have regional meetings for people to find those in their area that are doing these practices that want to work together. Oh, if you're in, you know, oh, we have people in, in you know the, the top island of New Zealand. Uh, why don't you go to this group, go to room 231 and people in the bottom half of New Zealand, go to room 232, you know, people in Madagascar, go to room 234 and so on and so on. So you can find the others. You can do some matchmaking for local, but no, the, the, the only people that you're really going to be able to do the thing that we're talking about, the human to human connection with are the other 120 people in your kind of what they call your Dunbar number of real relationships. And you know, no, I mean, I can see you and you look nice. And I think we're having a little slight bonding experience. I don't know if it's projection, but I feel like you're, oh, she's a sweet person doing this good thing. Um, and that's great. But, and if we get to meet in real life at some point, then we get to be real humans together. But for now, we're, we're using what we know about human connection to, to enact a relationship here, but for the purpose 
of transmitting knowledge to people who are out there. And that's, you know, damn it, that's stimulating enough. It's just, you got to understand. So how, how are we going to be stimulated and fulfilled in these environments is with, um, and this is what digital does well, is with facts, with knowledge, with, with, you know, this is not television. Television was great for making people emotional and telling stories and bringing them through things and you project. Digital doesn't really do that. Digital is better for recall, for memory, and for work, for utilitarian stuff, for getting things done. And that's what we need more of, not less of. So I don't have a problem with us saying, look, we're going to do this thing online rather than killing the planet. We are going to share our, our best practices and stuff that we've done in the real world we're going to then bring it here at a real specific time, share all this stuff, and then go back out and have our real, real relationships. Mm -hmm. I think that's, that's really interesting. But how do we spread that narrative of the digital space is one that we use for knowledge transmission and for the spread of hopefully not false information, but good information? How do you, when so many people are turning to the internet for human connection, people look to Instagram to connect with people. Um, how do we pull those two things apart? Um, well, in some ways, the COVID lockdown is helping to do that, I think. I think people are starting to realize what they don't get out of this. They really long for, I mean, it's part of why I think we had such big protests in the US. Partly it was outrage. Partly it was the repression. People were so locked up that they needed, you know, they needed to, to come out into the street and, and uh, experience their corporeal physical um, reality. You know, then that's, I mean, the way we teach this, I mean, would be, it sounds so quaint. I mean, in school, even, you know, in, in America, our schools, when they think about computers, they get so into um, STEM, we call it, you know, science, tech, uh, 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 I forgot, engineering and mathematics and teaching technology and media as kind of job skills. And I think what we need to do instead is teach media and technology as liberal arts, as, you know, how do we think critically? You know, we still don't teach liberal arts in, in America or it's, it's uh, certainly diminished, but how do we think critically about the things um, that we're using? How do we understand, um, well, what do I want to use this platform for? And what does the company that makes this platform want to use this platform for? And they're two different things, right? They want to use it to do digital surveillance on me or to modify my behavior. I want to use it to connect with other people and share facts. And then you see which ones are good at this and which ones aren't. And you say, well, you know, Facebook is not going to be really good for us to exchange information in this way because Facebook has weird relationships with governments. You know, it's already working to help repress certain kinds of social movements by, by you know, uh, uh, you surrendering to whatever government it's it's working with and all the data that it's using and what it, the way it's tracing people and identifying people for those who want to stop us from doing things. Uh, so it's like, okay, so that's not going to work for that. Um, you know, but other platforms that seem more more trustworthy in their in their governance are also they tend to be more open source and open API in their, in their execution. So if we're teaching technology like that, which has more open standards, which is spying less, which is selling less of my data, in which of these platforms am I the genuine user rather than the used, you know, that's the kind of critical thinking. And that was, you know, a book I wrote in 2010 called Programmer Be Programmed 
was kind of arguing that not that you need to become a programmer, but that if you're not the one aware of of uh, uh, sort of if you're not the one behind the programming of something, then chances are it's programming you, you know, and that I think, again, we're becoming more and the, the maybe the next generation is more more intuitively aware of some of these factors, but we've got to become more more, you know, actually aware. I think we need to, you know, speak out in the open about what platforms are working for us and which ones are we working for. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's coming back to something you're talking about before with how we're biologically made as humans. And when we interact with someone, we see their peoples grow, we exchange pheromones. Um, mm. how, how do we maintain that? Where do you see the future of that going when for many people, there's not so much of an end in sight for this pandemic or the new normal is really going to exclude that. So how do we how do we maintain that in our lives, us as part of nature? Well, the new normal can't exclude that. You know, it can't. Um, or, I mean, if the new normal excludes that, then the, the transhumanists are right. If the new normal excludes human-to-human -human organismic contact, then the machines really can replace us at a certain point. Then we are just functioning cognitive you know and we're just little brains you know transmitting text and sound or whatever to each other and our, we can teach our computers to do more and more of that until yeah you know then we are just you know in some matrix and plugged in um but we end up if we do that we're gonna end up losing all of the uh I don't know if I'm even allowed to use these words anymore, but we're going to end up losing all of the innate indigenous knowledge that we desperately need to recover and recoup right now. You know, there's a way an indigenous person sees and experiences the world that where, where those who, who remember the, the knowledge of the first peoples, they, they, there, there's a, a way of seeing the cycles of, of you look at the moon and you understand what moon phase we're in and intuitively understand that, oh, in this moon phase, my serotonin is going to be maximized. In that one, it's acetylcholine. In this one, it's dopamine. So, And no, indigenous people were not talking about dopamine, but they knew which phase of the moon to cut down the tree, which phase of the moon to party, which phase of the moon to start relationships, because they understood on a certain level, there's a, there's cycles to reality to our to our world you know whether we call them you know circadian rhythms or biological clocks or or time itself and you know as we as humans lose touch with that i feel like we lose touch with the potential to 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 reify the the cyclic understanding of how the world works and will surrender entirely to the linear understanding of how the world works and the linear one you know which we got it's a media environment the we got linear time with the invention of text you know we invent once we had text once we could write things down we got history because we could write our story and we got the future because we could write contracts once we started thinking of the world as history and now and the future we looked at things in a linear way. How are we going to get there? When are we going to get the Messiah, you know, coming and saving the world and the apocalypse and the Armageddon and this? On some level, it was awful because of that stuff. On some level, it was great 
because we wanted to make next year better than this year and this year better than last year. But it's so dominated. We got this Western expansionary growth based, you know, pedal to the metal, eyes on the prize, ends justifies the means, linear, Aristotelian Western male orgasm narrative, you know, climax and conquer and yay. Um, and we know that that kills us all, right? So we have to have a little bit of that so the boys feel motivated, right? Come on, go get that field. Come on, can you plow that field? Can you plant all these seeds today? You know, play with that because they're going to have that urge no matter what, right? Boys think like that. But, but train them, you know, put that inside the more circular thing. But we don't get the circular thing. We don't get the circular understandings of the world unless we are outside with each other. So no, um, COVID cannot be a new normal. You know, instead what we have to do is to say, no, don't lock us up um, in digital devices. Instead, we have to look at what are the causes of COVID? The causes of COVID are an artificially global supply chain of industrial food and agriculture. You know, we, we, we fish for shrimp in the Gulf of Mexico. We ship them all the way to Vietnam and China to be shelled and ship them all the way back to the United States to be consumed. That's not efficient. That's not efficient. It's cheaper in the short run, but more expensive in the long term. And that's, you know, that's the problem with capitalism, the way we're, we're exercising it. That's a problem of not actually understanding the larger cycles or not being allowed to acknowledge them because we want short-term profit rather than long-term prosperity. Mm -hmm. I want to go back to what you were saying about getting back in touch with the innate humanity in all of us and the indigenous knowledge and teachings that we like Aboriginal tribes in Australia. I know they're able to, many of them, they're able to just innately know which way is north, south, east, east and west. They don't need to see the sun or the stars. They just feel it. How do we get back in touch with that? And I've seen that you've done some work about or had some podcasts about um, indigenous peoples. And in some ways, technology can really bring their voices and their stories and their knowledge to the forefront. So what's the balance? How do we use technology to reinvigorate that innate humanity? Um, we use technology to get the, the data points, the exercises, the thing. So, you know, you can... You can read a book by an indigenous scholar online, or you can order a book from it by an indigenous scholar and get it on your Kindle, but then go out into the world and see the woods where you are. And, and it's hard, but you know, when I walk around the woods where I am in the Northeast, I'm aware now that, oh, the reason I felt strange in these woods is because they're dead. You can feel it, you can know, because on some level, I instinctually know I'm not supposed to be able to see that far in the woods because I'm just seeing the little trunks of, gee, there's no flora, there's no small growth, it's, a, it's gone, why is that? You know, I can see that these trees are, I can hear the trees falling every time I walk in the woods because they were all planted at the same time and now they're, so they're all gonna fall at the same time. So. You know, I, I, the, the, re, the digital is there to help um, give me the information really that I need to then go out in the world and experience it in this other way. It's not the way we experience the world. It might be a good metaphor for collective knowledge. I always argued in the early 90s that the internet would not create a global brain, but it would be a great um, 
way to experience an imitation of a global brain. This is what it would be like if we all saw each other's thoughts, if we were all in the same headspace together, but it's, it's not real, it's a simulation of that. But then you can go out in the world and start to experience that, that organismic sensibility. And the more you do that, I mean, the obstacle to it for me is the pain, it's the anguish, it's the mourning. Because I go out in the world and to experience it like that, you start to see, oh my gosh, look at what we just paved over here. Or look at the way this farm is using these horrible caterpillar you know, destroying the soil matrix and treating the soil as if it were dirt and not knowing and then pouring chemicals on it to imitate what the soil matrix or what the fungi would have done for the plants. When you when you go out and I mean, everyone, all these people probably experienced it long before I did. But as a regular human, when I go out and see that for the first time, wow, it's the morning. So then come back to the digital space, have a group of a few hundred people and work through Oh my gosh, my heart is so, uh, I'm, in, I'm in mourning for what we've done. And people, yeah, yeah, I feel that too. But what can we do now? And how do we, all right, let's breathe a second and talk about, you know, what are some coping strategies? And that's the digital is great for that. And then go back out in the real world. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have just a couple minutes left. So I want to end on kind of a grander point. It's yeah. the sign behind you. It's the name of your book and your podcast, Team Human. Mm-hmm. Um, could you briefly say what Team Human is and what your hopes are if we can build a team human to tackle things like climate change, like pandemics, like riots in the streets. Um, could you speak to that? Yeah. I mean, team human is really, it's really just a, a, a phrase I'm using to help people remember that being human is a team sport that, you know, we live certainly in America, we live in a world of, of strident individualism. And we're told that success is when you've earned enough money to insulate yourself from the rest of the world, you know, to, to insulate yourself from the reality that you're creating by earning money in that way. You know, so, so you get your kind of your billionaire bunker, you get to be Elon Musk and you've got a rocket ship to get off the planet and leave us behind. And that's not, that's, that's the saddest existence of all, you know, the, 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 the venture capitalists and libertarians have, have misinterpreted, and I think cynically, they've misinterpreted evolution and Darwin to say that we live in a world with the survival of the fittest individual. And that's not what evolution is about. If you actually read your Darwin, you'll see what he's doing, what he's marveling at, page after page after page, is our ability, is the ability of species to collaborate and cooperate with one another for mutual survival. You know, we all know, well, you all know that you know trees are not individual plants; that trees communicate. Through, uh, uh, the, through the soil matrix, that they're not competing for sunlight. The ones that are getting sun are using, are, are sharing their nutrients through the mushrooms and mycelia with the ones that aren't getting the sun. And then when they lose their leaves, the little ones then give the nutrients back to the big ones and the mushrooms get a, a service fee for, for the transaction. You know, so they're all one thing. So you can't just have a tree. Trees, tree is part of this an organism and humans are the same way. There's no such thing as an individual. We are, we are, uh, uh, we are part of the same big nervous system. You know, stress is not yours. Stress goes out. Whether you want to talk about it through pheromones, if you find some scientific cause and effect, great. But it's just one of many of the ways that we experience each other together. 
So what I'm arguing is that anything that brings us together is kind of on the side of team human and the internet was in some ways supposed to do that, but anything that separates us and atomizes us and alienates us from one another, the way social media does now, where you find your silo and then hate the other side, or in America, the way digital media has really exacerbated the red state, blue state, Trump state, you know, normal state divide. Sorry, I, I'm obviously on one side of that divide, um, is it is a big problem. So if you wanna be on team human, the idea is how do you actually see the human being under the person wearing the make America great again hat? How do, you, how do they see the human being in us and realize that we have so much in common as humans that these, that these ideologies that have been used to separate us and divide us are really just ways of keeping the powerful in power, of keeping us fighting each other, keeping middle-class cops fighting middle-class black people and realizing, oh, wait a minute, we're the working class and it's them that are, 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 are leading us to believe that we're on opposite sides. That's a beautiful message. Thank you so much for sharing it. Oh, thank you. Um, Thank you so much for taking the time to join us. It was such a pleasure to talk to you and I learned so much. Oh, it's an honor to speak to you. You guys are, are, are the ones who are actually, I mean, land. I read that we only have 30, 30 harvests left if we don't start our land management differently. So mm -hmm. uh, please, you know, get this, get this out to the world and teach us, teach us as a world, get public information out. What can we do as regular people in our behaviors to support those who are doing regenerative land management and who are, are you know, understanding that we need more than one species of, of plant in the same place at the same time for everything to be healthy? Yeah, it's a symbiotic process. We need the brains like you and the scientists. We need everyone. So Great. Well, thanks for what you do. Thank you, Douglas, and thanks for your time. If you liked what you heard today, join us again for another episode next week about our relationship with wild species and why it needs to change before we lose some of our most valuable natural assets. Subscribe to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, or Stitcher, and reach out to us on social media with the hashtag GLFLive. And for everything you need to know about landscapes, ecosystems, and climate change, check out our website at globallandscapesforum.org. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you on the next one.